My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. This podcast series was recorded over Zoom during the lockdown period. This was part of an exclusive event laid on for veterans and serving personnel. We'd like to thank our guests for allowing us to release part of this conversation for you in podcast format. This episode was recorded on VE Day with Veteran of Politics and the Reserve Special Forces, Sir Julian Brazier. Sir Julian was the last Reserves Minister at the MOD before famously losing his Canterbury seat in a shock defeat after serving there for several decades. In this episode, he reveals his reasons why he thinks this happened. This podcast is jam-packed of anecdote, stories and advice for aspiring politicians and will satisfy both casual observers and political geek alike. It's a canter through history and a personal insight into recent times. It's time for you to listen to the conversation. Hello, um, good afternoon on VE Day. And could I just start by saying, Johnny, well done. This is a great initiative. I think it's a terrific, the work you're doing, largely unsung and largely unpaid. Um, VE Day is a very appropriate uh, day for us to be having this discussion when we're reminded of the service our forebears gave in two world wars. Each of you has served in the armed forces. This is about a different kind of service. Politics does matter, whether it's in parliament, uh, a national government, or whether it's in a council and local government. Political decisions matter, whether it was Churchill standing out in 1940 against almost the entire political and intellectual establishment of the country who all wanted to do a deal with Hitler after France had surrendered. Um, whether it's the decisions that are being made now over COVID, or whether it's a county council deciding the future of a school which is going to shape the lives of hundreds and perhaps thousands of young people. My key message really fits well with the sort of values we share as former members of the armed forces, which is that the reason to go into politics is because you want to do something Don't even think about it if it's because you want to be something. Uh, And I mean that. uh, I became interested in the armed forces, uh, in the um, politics as a child, because I was desperately concerned the height of the Cold War with the threat from the Russians and what was going on uh, on the military and indeed diplomatic and international side. I got so heavily bitten with it that When I became an MP, I um, resigned after only two or three years being a cabinet uh, PPS, a bag carrier for a senior minister, uh, over John Major's cuts in defence. The the qualities 
the values, the skills you've learned in the armed forces are very much usable in a political career. Self-discipline, determination, communication skills, leadership, teamwork. The first is that you do need to think around the subject as a whole. The people within a political party, and it will be a political party, who will decide whether you get a chance to stand or not before you get near the electorate, will be motivated by quite different things in some cases. One person may have gone in because they're very heavily concerned about mental health, perhaps because of a family issue. Another one may be deeply committed to farming. A third one may be principally interested in education. So you've got to broaden yourself through reading and study. The other point is you do need coaching, and Johnny can help on this, and we'll do a bit of it today, I hope, on how you get through the process, the writing of the CV, the board, uh, and crucially, how to handle the actual uh, panel interviews themselves. And we'll get into that. My main message, though, is that if your country does matter to you, and I know from your previous service it matters to each of you, um, then politics really does matter. I think that's an awesome message just to end that opening remark about it mattering because it does matter to us. Our country matters to us. Thank you very much. You touched on that in the introduction, Julian, about um, how you initially got involved, but um, you were involved in frontline politics for decades. Um, but why did you want specifically to become an MP in the first place? What was it that drove you? Well, I, I, I mean... It, my original involvement was very heavily around defence. And uh, that's also why I joined the then Territorial Army. I did a gap year with the regulars and then joined the Territorial Army. When I was at Oxford, um, I became involved in politics then. And it's very difficult to exaggerate now the extent to which we had a sense of political decline. Um, we were uh, known as the sick man of Europe. The trade unions were out of control. We had strikes. We had the, the, the winter of discontent. Our growth rate was one of the worst in Europe. Inflation was out of control. I mean, in just after I left university, we called the IMF in. No other major Western democracy has ever done that. We had two foreign administrators sitting in the economy, sitting in the treasury, running our economy. Um, so there was a sense also that you know, reversing national decline was was something that became as much a, a, an issue for me as um, the whole question of, uh, you know, defence. OK, so arguably it was um, part single issue, but part of the moment as well, the, the moment of the time. And I think we've seen that in recent times of some of the current crop of MP who have been motivated by a, mo a moment. Um, and I think um, that's come across in each of the conversations that we've had already and certainly to come. Um, and you did have that long career. And um, as I said, it was great to have worked with you for albeit a short period of time uh, towards the end of your parliamentary career. Um, and politics is often about winning and losing and comes down to a night, that election night where, you know, all that work comes to fruition. And um, you had that shock result. And I think it shocked many people in politics. It was certainly all over the media. But 
how did it feel to lose your seat and particularly by such a narrow margin? Well, to say it was unexpected is it sounds rather feeble now, although there was some constituency polling that hinted at it. The university presence, which is much bigger in Canterbury than anywhere else in the country, I've got as many students as both Oxford seats put together. Um, and they are among the, the busiest. Um, we were one of the few university seats that um, was still conservative. And I simply underestimated how much the anger over student loans and the and a number of other factors would bring the student vote out for the first time at the same time as um, frankly a poor national campaign uh, I take full responsibility for it I was complacent I spent a third of the campaign helping in other seats that we were trying to capture and uh, I should have done things differently um, the uh, the funny thing about it is that and this is very heavily because of the armed forces uh, connection my father was a soldier and I served for a long time in the reserves um, Although it was a shock to the system, recovery was almost immediate. Um, I mean, I, I can honestly say that I was over it before I'd even left the CUD. I remember my last words at the CUD to one of the Labour councillors reminding him that he was due at the AGM of the Canterbury Sea Cadets the next week because he was a local <laughs> councillor there and was very supportive of them. Um, and, uh, you know, as I came out, there was no way back. Uh, the uh, um, having lost a university seat, it was quite clear they needed a younger candidate to turn it round. If we'd done things differently, we could have held it, but we weren't going to recapture it with me. So I wanted to give someone else a chance. So I immediately got on with what else do I want to do with my life? Wow. I mean, that was, I mean, that's, it's really generous of you to share that because it's something that I've wanted to ask you for a while. Um, and uh, indeed, you were my MP uh, when I uh, was living at Howe Barracks with the 1st Battalion Princess Wales Royal Regiment. So, yeah, it, to say it was a shock is an under um, underestimate um, that the, the power of that shock. Um, you, you touched on your, mili- your reserve service during that answer as well. And you've been a long champion of reserve service. Uh, for those of us that do continue to serve in the reserves, um, and you've been one yourself. How have you seen attitudes towards reserve service change from the time that you joined, in particular right up to the period where you were serving as Minister for the Reserves? Um, Well, they progressively deteriorated with the end of the old war of the cold war they'd never been very good in this country i mean as somebody with relatives all over the commonwealth we've always been behind the other english-speaking countries in understanding the importance of reserve service there's always been a a bit of a feeling in britain uh that the regulars are the main part of the armed forces and really the reserves are a bit of an extra but that got progressively worse in the 90s and the noughties and the reserves were in danger of almost disappearing despite the fact that at the height of the afghan and iraq contest at one point a fifth of all the people um in iraq and and uh, an eighth of those in afghanistan were reservists and they only represented three percent of the budget but despite that and all the reserves who were killed reservists who were killed in Afghanistan, um, it it got progressively worse. We then saw, with the review and then the white paper, a steady improvement. And I think that things are 
a lot better now. I think there is a wider understanding. It's it's interesting that we've come through all the commemorations of the First World War, and we've just um, uh, uh, obviously had VE Day today on the Second World War. The the thing which I, I often think is under under not very well understood is the extent to which we got. Um, citizen soldiering right in the First World War and wrong in the Second. I mean, the spirit of the Territorial Army in those early days in France and Belgium, when Sir John French, the Commander-in-Chief, said we could never have held the line without them, um, and the PALS battalions, which were largely modelled on reservists' uh, service, so you had them drawn from a single area and the rest, um, I mean, to the point where in the Battle of the Somme, there wasn't a single man, a million men due to go over the top. There wasn't a single man listed as absent without leave the night before. And you compare it to the absolute shambles in the Second World War with the reorganisation of the TA um, in early 1939 and backfilling broken up units with conscripts. And people are surprised that we lost everywhere for the first two or three years of the war, while at the same time, the RAF, who kept the same model, the Auxiliary Air Force were brilliant. They actually, a closely hidden secret, slightly outshot uh, squadron for squadron, their regular counterparts. They were absolutely brilliant in the Battle of Britain because they kept a model that worked, as had our Australian and, and New Zealand counter and Canadian counterparts with the brilliant things the Aussies did in the, in the Western Desert. Um, so, uh, you know, sorry, I've got carried away on it, but the answer <laughs> is I think it's getting better. And I think people are more recognising now the, the importance of reserve service. Yeah, I think I've seen it change. I first joined the reserves in 1996, um, 5 PWRR in somewhere you'll be very familiar yeah, yeah. with, uh, yeah. near the yeah. TA Centre, um, yeah. deployed uh, with the regulars um, and then rejoined in my late 20s and deployed to Afghanistan but it's always been, I've always been deployed on my own. So I think you touched on something really interesting there about that sense of um, citizen soldiers and communities and the PALS battalions. And I think really the only place we've seen it um, as close to that was the deployment of units like the London Regiment that went yeah. um, as, yeah. as kind of a unit. Yeah. Um, and perhaps um, whether or not we'll see that again, um, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, but no, it's, well, it's we've really got the, We've got the Royal Yeomanry deploying to... Um, six-month six deployment to the Baltic states, and we've had people going through doing the Cyprus job, uh, two mm. uh, TA battalions going through recently doing the Cyprus job. But uh, but we must come on to the stuff that people really zoned in for, which yes. is discussing how we get, get people <laughs> through the process. Yeah, sure. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, we'll skip on to that, in fact. Um, in, in terms of the things this community can draw upon from those experience, whether they're regular or reserve, what's been, would you say, your go-to skill or value um, that you've reached into your toolbox from your military service that you've applied directly to your political service, would you say? Well, I think carrying on uh, in the face of challenges is something which is in lots of jobs, but it's particularly uh, there in the military. And Britain's huge record over the centuries of losing battle after battle but finally coming through on top by sheer bloody persistence um is uh, which is so sort of central to our our, uh, our our sort of military way of life um 
is uh, you know uh, was important because very few of the campaigns I was involved in looked as if they were going to succeed in the beginning. I mean, the last big one uh, where I certainly didn't have a leadership role, but I played some role, was the battle for Brexit. We'll have people in this group who take both views on Brexit and we're, you know, we're all on the same side now. But, but again, it's that feeling that you've got to define the aim, maintain the aim, and think of every bloody factor you can bring into to make the aim work. And using um, serve to lead, which is a great um, a great principle. If you're trying to run a little pressure group, I mean, I set one up to resist John Major's defence cuts and then his disgraceful decision to sell off the military housing estate. We lost, but we only partially lost. We managed to get a number of concessions without which things would have been much, much worse afterwards. And setting that group up, I worked on the principle that... Um, I would do all the admin and make sure that other people in the group got all the credit whenever anything, whenever we got a win. Um, and in that way, we, we, we actually managed to make more progress than you would have thought was possible for a little group of a dozen or so backbenchers. So punching well above your weight there and leaning into that, that military background. I mean, would you, would you say that politics you'd you'd recommend it to reservists and regulars going forward as a an yes i would um i think that if you're committed to your country and very few people put a uniform on in this country who, who don't feel a certain love of their country um i'd say to each of you um yes for the reasons i said in my opening remarks um politics does matter um it's an exciting business it's a it's a financially insecure business. You never know if you're going to, to uh, you know, uh, one night in the middle of my career. I mean, by the time I lost my seat, I was able to draw a large pension and uh, I got a redundancy payment, all those sort of things. But there was a moment um, only 10 years into my career when I was supporting three small children um, when literally half the Conservative Party lost their seats in one night. And I, you know, hanging on then might easily have not happened. If I'd had the sort of unlucky factors which came up 20 years later, I certainly wouldn't have held on. There were a couple of pieces of, uh, of good luck in that campaign which made it possible. So it's insecure, but it's exciting. And more important than that, it makes a difference. I think it's really interesting as well that we use military terminology in politics, whether we're talking about a campaign or we're talking about things like dawn raid um, during campaigns. We do draw upon that language. And I think that's probably why it does draw 7% of Parliament at the moment have a military background, which is the highest it's been for a while. Um, Looking forward to political challenges coming down the road, perhaps in the post-COVID world, what what do you think would equip that cohort of politicians for that challenge coming down the road? Well, I think one of the issues is that we have to be able to make uh, hard decisions. The, um, uh, 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 the reality is whatever we do on COVID, an awful lot of people are going to die. Um, I think there's quite a lot of evidence that lockdown is... Um, resulting in people dying from other causes or setting themselves up to die from other causes. The most obvious example being the huge drop in people with suspected cancer going forward to get checked. Um, So whatever we do, lots of people are going to die. And we have to think through in the way that 
there's very, very few groups outside um, the armed forces and medicine uh, who have to think about this. We have to make decisions that that involve life and death in very large numbers and have to think our way through to produce a um, both to minimise the death rate, but also to get ourselves into a position where we can recover properly. I mean, it's, listening to Winston Churchill's VE Day speech, there's a very interesting criticism of this. Now, I, I hasten to say I am the world's greatest admirer of Winston Churchill. And when he made that speech, this was a guy um, well into his 70s who was absolutely exhausted and had pulled off a miracle. Without him, we would unquestionably have lost the war and Hitler would have run all of Europe. But as a tired man resting on his laurels, if you listen to that speech, it was brilliant up until the very end. And what went wrong at the end, and so many political commentators have made that point, was in those closing sentences, while he quite rightly pointed out the fact that we hadn't won in the Far East yet, and uh, that job had to be finished. He gave no hint, not even a germ of a hint, as to what he wanted Britain to be after the war. And surprise, surprise, he lost one of the most crushing defeats the Conservatives have ever had. I mean, I, I think you have to go back 200 years or something to find a defeat on that scale on our, on our side uh, a, a month or so later. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've got one or two people from Labour here. I mean, you know, full marks. Clement Attlee had loyally backed Churchill against all the Conservatives who wanted him to do a deal with Hitler. Um, but his great slogan then, and he, and he said, you know, he expected to lose on it. He admitted privately, but his great slogan then, give a chair for Winston Churchill and then vote Labour. And surprise, surprise, the country did because they wanted a vision for what was going to happen after the war, just as we need a vision now for what's going to happen after Covid. And really interestingly, Clem Attlee's uh, son, Captain the Lord Attlee, I remember when I was a young cadet in Ashford, uh, who was a really... A Remy, uh, or was a grandson, sorry, apologies. Yeah, grandson, uh, a Remy, Remy Reserve Officer. That's um, right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you, you know. Um, Very well. Excellent guy. Just one last question. Um, what is life like after Parliament now? I, I, I should imagine we'd ask your family the same question too. Um, do you miss it? There are bits of it I miss a lot. When we lost a, a vote by a single vote on Brexit, I, uh, I really felt I'd let the side down by not being there. Um, there's some bits I have to confess I don't miss. Um, I've yet to wake up on a Saturday morning and think, bugger, no surgery. But have no doubt about it, surgeries are where a lot of the best ideas came from. There's nothing like seeing a decent family whose lives have been ruined to make you think about what needs changing. Um, the uh, I, I'm now chairman of a small security company and I'm non-executive director of two technology startups neither of the latter two are paying anything yet but they're both very in very exciting areas thanks to our guests and thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast hit subscribe now alternatively you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate donate or become our mate thank you